Hello and welcome back to the From Page to Picture podcast where we take you page by page and scene by scene through the movie adaptations of all your favourite books. We are your hosts Lucy and George and this is episode two where we will be talking about The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Hello. The Goldfinch follows Theodore Decker who, after a museum bombing, is left motherless and in possession of a priceless painting. While small and simple, the painting leads Theo into a massive and complex art underworld with huge repercussions throughout his life. Both the book and film paint the picture of a boy's life as he struggles with PTSD and drug addiction. And just in case we cover any of these distressing themes, this is a trigger warning for the book and film do contain drug misuse and domestic abuse. Written by American author Donna Tartt in 2013, The Goldfinch has won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, alongside being selected as the 2013 Best Book of the Year by Amazon. Her first novel since The Little Friend in 2002, Donna Tartt has been praised by the likes of Stephen King as an amazing good writer, and The Goldfinch actually spent over 30 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list in the US. Adapted by John Crowley in 2019 with Warner Bros. and Amazon Studios, the film stars Ansel Elgott, Oaks Vegley and Finn Wolfhard. Sadly, however, the film made just $2.6 million in its opening weekend, the sixth worst opening of all time in a movie opening on more than 2,500 different screens. Considering it cost $45 million to make, it's safe to say that it did not do well. It also has a 24% on the tomato meter, with the critic consensus stating that the film mishandles its source material. I'm surprised that Stephen King, of all writers, will describe another writer with the words, an amazing good writer. Like, surely he has better words under his belt. It's also interesting that he's praising someone who doesn't do horror, because I wouldn't call The Goldfinch anywhere near the same genre as Stephen King. I mean, maybe the film. I know your opinion of the film is being not very good but to be honest I think mine they're a bit closer to get I think definitely the book is better than the film but I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be I do think that it sticks closely to the plot like accurately um, and like the alterations in terms of what happens and like the way that it happens are kind of minimal and like just not including stuff isn't really something it's subjected to I just think like in some ways the film kind of relies on a knowledge of the book like I feel you can't it completely leaves out the idea of why there's a bombing in the museum and why the painting's so important Mm, yeah definitely the film and the book are really close together in terms of the the content they have but the film differs in that unlike the book it's not in order it's a it keeps jumping back and forth which I think makes sense for the film because it's trying to keep the film watcher engaged because it's a long film and jumping back and forth means that you get to get all the exciting bits in bursts yeah because it starts with Ansel in the hotel room scrubbing the blood out of his shirt which in some ways makes it much more action, like straight from the beginning. But then I do think that the jump back and forward kind of robs it of its cohesion in that, and it, it kind of, it's some, while in some ways it is good because it's action throughout, in some, at the same time it's also choppy and kind of confusing. You don't know why he's scrubbing the blood out of his shirt. 
Yeah, definitely. A big thing in the uh, felt the book, I think, is that like a key theme is the fate. Like all of the stuff which happens to him is happenstance. He he was just happened to be there on that one day of the week. He was caught smoking on that one unfortunate occasion. They just decide to go into the museum then. And it really progresses naturally as a story. Like you believe it and it's just a few key events which are random and part of his life. But with the film jumping back and forth, it kind of feels like a bunch of set concrete events he never could have avoided. Mm, Yeah, kind of like the randomness of life and like the randomness of recovering from like PTSD. I do think as well, like, more many like the whole point of a film is that you have this structure of like a rise a climax and then like a resolution and like the book doesn't have it and I I don't I think in some ways the film kind of tries to do that by jumping back and forth Mm, yeah definitely I think the one bit where the film really works and the book really doesn't, I think it's one of the few moments, is in the ending. I really don't like the ending of the book because it kind of comes across as a bit pretentious. And I think it's a problem about throughout the book, but I can get onto that a bit later on. But uh, the film, by the end of the film, we finally get the whole picture of, uh, if obviously we knew because we'd read the book beforehand, but I watched it with my family and they they've realised it by the end that, it was a bombing at a museum and all that stuff had happened. And it's, it kind of made it kind of more of a closed loop type thing, which I thought was done better than in the book. Yeah, I do agree that at the end of the book, like the last chapter is so out of character and it's this massive internal monologue from fear of how like good can come from bad and like trying to navigate yourself back to a happier place. But the film like to gets rid of that but at the same time the film leaves us with a lot of questions like did he did he break off the engagement like where was the like the murders have they been resolved like what happened to the fake antiques that Theo sold like earlier on in the film and I also think like when you said your parents knew about the museum bombing at the end I think that's so integral to the story that I think in some ways the film should have kept with the book and put it at the beginning because there's no there's no motivation for why Theo feels so close to the painting in a way. Mm, yeah, because in the book, it's one of the first things you that happens in the book, and it 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 keeps going back to that moment, and it just shows how important and integral this moment is to his life. Like it's the moment his mother dies, the moment his entire life changed. But in the film, it's like it never happened. It just keeps. I guess it it does work in a somewhat reference to PTSD in that you don't want to remember the entire thing and it's in fragments but I think it could have still worked if it was they went through the entire event as the book did and then jumped back occasionally. Yeah I like the PTSD thing I mean that's interesting I also think they like the whole book spends probably nearly 10 chapters getting to know Theo's mum that comes from the having the bombing at the beginning and in the film she's not introduced until the end like we don't even know her name and we don't even see her face till the end and I think for me she was such an like a good character her like relationship with the doorman and her relationship with Phil was what was interesting to me mm, I, I was thinking about like, the, the exact same 
thing when I was uh, watching the film because I felt in the book he was borderline obsessive about his mother. Mm. That the that, as you said, the ten chapters describing who she was, like everything she did, he was meticulous in describing who she was. Whereas in the film, you hardly see any of her. You only see her face once or twice near the end. Yeah, I think in I think in some ways the film lacked character development in the characters outside of Theo and Boris. Even Boris, in a way, isn't given the attention that Theo is. Like Hobie, he's a really interesting character personality wise in the book and I think in some ways he's kind of not given the space in the film to develop as a character and that's the same for Theo's mom and the same for like even minor characters like the taxi driver that like make you laugh in the book but are just not there Mm. in the film. I think that's a similar argument for most uh, book to movie adaptations because this is a 900 page book and while it is a long film, it's still only two and a half-ish hours. You can't condense all that time developing these characters into that, that time. Yeah, it kind of calls on the question of like faithfulness when you're adapting a book to a film in that how can a film be faithful if it has to cut bits out because the book is like Donata 900 pages long and the film's only two and a half. And when there's a lot of plot to cover, the novel, like you're never ever going to be able to do cover the whole novel. I think the film not covering everything in the book, to, at least to me, uh, it kind of improved upon the watching of the film for me. And, and that's only because it took me so long to finish the book. It felt a lot more fast paced film. Uh, my family said that it did quite drag, but to me it felt like it was going at a breakneck pace because it took me so long to finish the book. And I felt... <laughs> It was quite an interesting thing because it's it, it felt like a life story, the book, uh, going gradually over time, whereas the film's just breakneck pace and you don't really get to spend enough time with the key people in Theo's life. I just want to say it took you over a month to finish this book. It's over 900, well, it's about 900 pages long. I do computer science. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not good for me. I, d- I do agree, though, and that I think it's easier to watch the film than read the book. Um, a lot, a lot, I think, comes from how Tart cannot narrate a single bit in the book without you, like, having to go through all of the descriptions of it. Like, you find yourself zoning out and missing stuff because she's so adamant to describe the table with, like, 60,000 adjectives. Yeah, I, I, that was one of the really big issues. She was, she's a really talented writer. And I love the descriptions you do it, but then she would just go that extra step more, but more. And I could feel my eyes glazing over as I just kept working my way down the page. And it's just, I feel like it would just kept going and going and I just didn't need it to. Yeah. But then at the same time, I kind of, you know how you were saying that the film for you was fast paced. I kind of disagree in that although it does adopt a faster pace, it kind of skims over the bits that you want to actually spend time with. Like the bit where they they go to Amsterdam to get like get the painting back. It takes up like five minutes of the film. And I think that was such like the whole plot of the back of the blurb on the book is about this underground criminal area. And I think that's such mm. an important part to the story. Yeah, that's, and I think the, how slow burn it was in the uh, book really contributed to how claustrophobic uh, Theo felt trapped in that hotel room after the events that unfolded. 
with the added descriptions and everything that uh, Donna Tart gave, it did kind of made me question why she chose the first person narrative because if there was like these massive long pages full of text by a different uh, character and it could have easily just been condensed into if it was in a third person this is what they were thinking or something like that I think that's interesting I've never thought about that like when I was preparing notes for this I didn't think about the first person narration but I think in some ways the first person narration allows Donna Tart to kind of focusing on the subjectivity of um, Theo in that it's the majority of the book is monologues of his trauma and his struggles and I think for me the film when that adaptation there it doesn't get the internal thoughts of Theo down it makes him look boring in a way in where like in the book he's much more complex character because of that first person internal narration I think that again is to do with the whole relation between a book and their film adaptation because when we're reading a book uh, it's like it's I, it's we, it's you're, it's really personal you're spending all this time reading this book and it's just you and the book but when you're watching a film be it in a cinema I mean not at the moment but in the mm. cinema or in your living room just watching it you're watching this person play you're watching Ansel Igor play Theodore you're not you're not Theodore you're watching someone be Theodore and I felt that kind of breaks you away from it a bit. Much more detached yeah that's mm. interesting I do I like that about books though that you can get that personal connection. I also think for me the book when it came to character and connection I found myself switching back and forth between loving Theo and hating him and then loving Boris and then hating him and then loving him again I thought that was quite interesting. I haven't really thought about it, but then I, I did feel a similar way. And I think that's a commendation to the writing of Donna Tartt because she's able to expertly show that they aren't perfect people. They've had their trauma of life. Uh, obviously, Theodore's mother dying, his abusive father, uh, Boris, his dad being abusive and not having his mother around. And it's just, it kind of shows that no one's perfect and while they may not be very nice people, they will do nice things. Yeah, I think the book as well does well. It looks at how all these impact the character, especially the abuse um, with Boris and his dad, which I think doesn't translate well to the film. They touch on it, but there's not much there in terms of the depth of how Boris's dad abused him. Yeah, but he also, in the book, had his kind ways in the way that Boris would still live with him and still looked up to him. Um, and I think that's kind of missing in the film, which is needed to make him into a deeper character. And instead he comes across rather uncharismatic and kind of boring. Yeah, that's again to do, I think, with the whole trying to condense into that two hour film. You skip over the bits and then you end up skipping over the bits which make the story so good. And it's just yeah. pointless. I think as well, in terms of casting, like, Theo played by Ox Fegley, the, the child. Ah, I, I did not like him. He character like appearance wise, he it's not how I pictured him. He's not scrawny enough in <laughs> in words. I don't know why, but I could kind of picture Finn Wolfhart more as Theo than uh, what we say his name was Ox. Ox Fegley. Ox Fegley, yeah. But I don't think he was the worst part of it. I think we no. all know what that was. 
Um, I think it's interesting that you say that Finn Wolfhard, play, you thought he was playing Fear because when I first watched this film with my friend, um, I said to her, oh, Finn Wolfhard's playing Boris. And she said the exact same thing that you said to me. Oh, I thought he was playing Fear. And I think that's so interesting because I do think Finn Wolfhard does have the the kind of the, the gothic kind of drug personality that you kind of expect from Boris in the nicest way possible. And then again, I guess Orcs Vogley uh, being cast or kind of miscast kind of lent itself to the character because he just he came across as this quite pure, normal kid. And then he mm. goes through this event and you can see he gets changed by it. And it really shows that it kind of can kind of happen to anybody in a way. Yeah. I think speaking of how he gets changed, it's interesting how the film doesn't focus much on the um, Theo's like downward spiral into drugs when he returns home. That's kind of not there in the film. And I don't know if that's because they were trying to make it more accessible to viewers and that if they don't, like if they put more drugs in it, then obviously people won't watch it as much. Like not many people will watch it. Or it's just, again, another example of not being able to fit it in. I think... In well, obviously, it's a key part of who he is in the book, and it's arguably one of the his biggest vices. And it kind of shows that how linked he is to his father in a way of his alcohol addiction. And it's kind of that fear of, Am I a bad person like my dad in a way? And in the film, obviously, you do spend some time with his dad, but it's not as much time. And I think if there isn't going to be as much time of his dad building up him as a character, his drug addiction doesn't have as much relevancy. Yeah, I think they've focused more on the dad to show how, like, what happens when life is derailed and that safety net of your mother and your father have gone Mm. and you're left with a family that you're trying to fit into, like the adoptive family, and then you're left with Hobie, who you're also trying to see a father figure in. Yeah, definitely. I also think it's interesting how they um, they cast Hobie as a black man, um, Jeffrey Wright. He's called, um, and he's I, I googled it, and he's five foot eleven, not six foot four, six foot five, like the book says. And he's also not Irish, which is interesting because obviously Hobie is just like defined by his Irish roots in the book. Mm, yeah, I was definitely. I don't know why when I was reading the book, I was expecting a like a Hagrid esque character in a way, just big, hug, <laughs> huggable. But so I was quite surprised when I heard that Jeffrey Wright was playing the character. But I did, I did grow to quite like him. He, he had that kind of caring, give me a hug vibe, and I quite enjoyed that. Yeah, I think a lot of that's because he lives in this little tiny hut. Well, it's not a hut, but it's like tiny underground with all this furniture. I think it draws on the idea that not every single minuscule detail of the book needs to be perfect in the film and that even if you do cast a black actor in the role of a white character, they could be just as excellent and just as representative of the character that that author has written. I was surprised to see that uh, they recast Xandra, who in the book is a black woman, as uh, Sarah Paulson. And yeah. <laughs> I was... I was. I wouldn't say I was... I don't mind her in stuff like American Horror Story, but it was a bit jarring seeing her not screaming all the time. (laughs) I think um, she reminded me of the typical, like, L.A. wife, this guy who's constantly, like, losing all his money to gambling and stuff. Mm. In a 
way that not like because of her race but just the way that she was so skinny and blonde that just kind of fit with it I think well it would have been good if they kept the uh, a black casting for it didn't take away because of how minimal her role was mm. it could have been a lot worse yeah she's interesting though because in the book there's so much kind of uncomfortableness around how Boris wants to like sleep with her and Boris gets really close with her once the dad's dead and like he feels sorry for her but then there's also like the undertone of he's just using her for the drugs and I, I like that relationship but it was really uncomfortable to read mm. almost as uncomfortable as Finn Wolfhart's accent oh, <laughs> oh no <laughs> the first time he opens his mouth you just think oh can you just not do the Russian accent I, I give him kudos. He did try, but it didn't really work. Like by, by, no. by I mean, it didn't really work. It didn't work at all. <laughs> and when uh, the older Boris, I'm going to butcher his name, Anurin Bernard, I didn't actually hate him when I first saw him because I was like, that's what a Russian accent should sound like. <laughs> and sure, maybe he didn't give the best performance. I will give him where it's due. He could He could do the accent, which was nice. Yeah, I could do the accent, but it was quite monosyllabic and mm. a bit just passively boring, which kind of ruined the whole Boris character for me in a way that the book doesn't, because Boris is so extravagant and so out there in his personality, and the older Boris actor just kind of lulled him down. I think passively boring is an excellent way to describe the film. I like that. <laughs> I also, um, I'm really sad that the movie left out the character of Horst Hurst. I don't know. Oh, yeah, you... the uh, taxi driver, uh, the limo driver or whatever, the driver. No, the the um, the associate in art crimes, Boris is the guy that he goes to and, you know, he's in that room and there's all those, like, dead skinny bodies on the floor. Oh, and yeah. Him, yeah. Like, he's, he's in this apartment full of, like, forged art and it's, it's such a creepy... And like, just just a creepy moment in the book, and it kind of draws you into it more. And he was just missing in the film. And I get that it's probably again because it was only two and a half hours and it couldn't fit it in. But he was such a cool character that I think the film could have used. That's quite interesting because, as you just saw, I didn't actually really remember that character very well. I think it's partly to do with the book is so detailed and descriptive I, I kind of got into the book like okay not very much is going to happen very quickly it's going to be a slow drive and then suddenly it's oh Boris stole the painting that's a cool development and then they quickly introduce all these new characters and surprisingly she doesn't go into overly that much detail at each point you just get introduced to like five or six characters and I, I got a bit overwhelmed I was like I'm not used to this about <laughs> 700 pages in it is, I think at that point as well, you're also like, can we just get to the end of the book? <laughs> I want it to end. We need to talk about how Boris steals the goldfinch. Like, mm. massive plot twist. That was a really big twist for me. I, I had no idea that was going to happen. I mean, I probably should have expected it, but I, I just wasn't. And when I watched it, my family, they weren't expecting it either. And I felt it was yeah. built up really well. I guess it was kind of in the book, yeah. it definitely worked because it's just such a slow paced story and he has these other troubles other than the Goldfinch. Like, while they all start with the Goldfinch, 
he has other problems going on and it more focuses on that like his relationship his selling of the uh, hybrid chairs and uh, furniture and by the time you hear Boris start apologizing you're thinking what is he apologizing for and then when it hits you it really does hit mm. you yeah I I guessed it when I first read the book purely because there was something off in the way that he kept hugging this painting and he was so so obsessed with like opening the tiny little corner and looking at it and then there was a point where he just kind of didn't and he stopped looking at it and he he still hugged it but he never opened it and I was like this that's not the painting like I didn't guess that Boris stole it I just knew that that was not the painting and I was like he's lost the painting somewhere it's Mm. it's it's gone and that's gonna be the plot twist I don't know if it was (laughs) just the film uh because I'd seen it after the read the book and understood what was going to happen but the scene where he's in the uh little really tidy uh room where he keeps all his stuff and drugs and he's hugging the painting I thought that it's really obvious that that's not the painting because why wouldn't he have opened it he's just hugging a paint uh, newspaper wrapped thing yeah and I, I'm interested yeah, to know if I had watched the film first if I would caught on sooner yeah because they kind of make it more obvious in the film in a way I do think um it's interesting how he apologizes for it when in the book he's Boris is very much a character that does not apologize for anything he does like he his whole relationship with Theo is about like it's it's sexual in a way but it's also that Boris is in charge and we will do drugs on the um swings and we will do this and that and then he kind of apologizes and I think that's so interesting because he's a kind of character that shouldn't apologize and I think like you said, Boris did what he wanted when he wanted. Like he, the reason he found the pain because he just went into Theo's locker looking for money, and that was yeah. that, that was who he was. And I think him actually apologizing was such a big thing and reveal like it made the whole reveal that he did steal the painting so much bigger because it kind of humanizes Boris a bit and shows that he realizes how important this painting is to Theo, and he took it. Yeah, and then he goes to the extent that he will get it back no matter how hard it is and he he has to create this whole persona for Theo so that he can get it back even though he knows that Theo is not this kind of person that can think on the spot and won't be able to deal with a gun in this kind of situation. I do, I do think I like Boris when it comes down to it but I also didn't like the way he was quite racist in his language and kind of a bit misogynistic as well yeah i don't think i'd go for a drink with him but i guess i would trust him (laughs) for a kidney i don't know but he seems like (laughs) he he seems definitely at the brother type situation and of usually you'd hate him but you can depend on him when you really need to yeah you can depend on him for drugs if you're wanting drugs exactly finally for legal reasons that's a joke i have a fact Actually, I'm going to throw my facting now. In terms of casting, Harry Styles was almost cast for the role of Boris. I don't think I could stomach having uh, Harry Styles' Russian accent just after the shit show of Finn Wolfhart's Russian accent. (laughs) I think it would just be a bit too much for me and I'd have to turn the film off. (laughs) I do think there's something there about how Finn Wolfhard has a head full of black curly hair and... Harry Styles also has a quite curly hair. It's like how they're like cast, uh, everyone's doing curls. 
fan casts for the Fantastic Four film just by going what people's heads look like. <laughs> uh, I also like unpopular opinion, but Harry Styles isn't very good in um, Dunkirk, so I don't think he would have been very good. In I mean, this I don't think either. anyone's very good in Dunkirk. It's not really about the characters, is it? It's more about the event. Yeah, that is true. Yes, we'll get onto that when we cover the Dunkirk book, which isn't an actual book. That's not a thing. We, we, not we a won't thing. be doing that. <laughs> I think it's interesting that the movie skips the part of the book where Theo and Boris's relationship gets strained because Boris gets a girlfriend called Koku. Koku? I think that's yeah, how you pronounce it. I have no it. idea what um, name like She doesn't exist in the film. He doesn't. He doesn't treat Theo in a good way because of this girlfriend in the book. Like, it made him more of a dick in the book, and it's not there in the film. Oh, I think definitely it's, again, because of trying to condense that 900-page book into the two-and-a-half-hour film. That It was just a character that wasn't needed. But I think it kind of did definitely lend itself to the story because, while it isn't an overly huge factor of the story... There is definite like chemistry between Boris and Theo. And while it doesn't mm. while obviously Theo doesn't outright say it, it's clear that while Boris is with his girlfriend, he is jealous of Boris because he wants he wants Boris. Yeah. And Theo wants Boris to come with him to America. He's he, he almost says, I, I love you and I want you to come with me. In the film, they actually kiss, which I thought was a I thought was quite yeah. a nice addition to the story. I do like it because I know that the, the book got a lot of criticism in that she kind of flirts with the idea of doing this homosexual queer relationship but never actually commits to it. And like, if you're going to commit to it, then commit to it. There's nothing wrong with having LGBTQ plus representation in dark academia literature. Mm. Um, but the but the film kind of takes it to a different level in that they have that external kiss, but in the same way, can it just not also be read as a friendship case? Yeah, true, true. I think Donatar almost committed to the relationship between the, those two, got scared and then put her together with the rich daughter, which I felt was really jarring Pixie. because they, yeah, because they just meet and then it's a time skip of like a few months, like, oh yeah, we're engaged. And I was really surprised about that happening. I was like, what just happened? Yeah. I, d- I didn't see it coming. I was like, hold on a second. You've been pining after Hobie's niece for nearly 400 pages. Where- where's your love for Kitsy come from? You, you express-, express no interest. Also, she cheats on him. Should we talk about oh. Nicole Kidman as oh, uh, yes. Miss Barber? Yeah. Initially, I really wasn't a fan because she came across as like really monotone. Then I realised... In the book, she is quite turn her nose up to everybody, not really emotional. But then, obviously, later in the book, she sees she opens up, she really loves fear, and that comes across really well in the film. I feel the love between them. Yeah, I agree. I did like it when her husband dies and her son dies on the fishing accident, and you see this closer relationship start to form which is really, like, I think Nicole Kidman does a good job of that. I think the character of Miss Barber is a really excellent, like, ex- example of character development. And it shows yeah, someone can go from being impersonal and not likeable 
to becoming one of the most likable people in the book and someone Theo can depend on as a, basically a second mother. Yeah. The wedding scene where it's the, is it the engagement party? Um, and that's when Boris turned up. I think it's really interesting how there's this relationship with Kitsy about her not wearing his mother's earrings and then she wears them to this engagement party just when he's about to leave with Boris. Um, and I think that kind of, the film does a really good job of showing the focus on these materialistic objects such as the earrings and the painting. Mm, yeah, I think it links really well to his grief because when his mother first dies and he moves in with the barbers, and then when his dad comes and they have to go back, he he realizes there's all this stuff in his house, which is memories of his mother. And he's like, I don't know what to take. How am I going to remember her? And then when he's with Hobie, building all this stuff with all these backstories and uh, relationships and stuff. And I think in the film, there's a really good bit in which Hobie talks about, I don't know if it was in the book or the film, but they talk about how, if we love materialistic objects, does it make us any less than loving actual people? And I thought that was really good. And then there's obviously the painting. That's a materialistic object, but is arguably the single most important thing in Theo's life. Yeah. It's almost, in a way, a displacement of his relationship with his mother and kind of her love for him comes across in that painting as much as his love for her. Mm. He's... His mother really loved the painting and he wants to also love the painting, but he feels like if he unwraps it and looks at it, it's kind of like letting the genie out of a bottle in the way. He wants to preserve mm. what she saw and kind of like everyone loves the painting, but then he realizes he doesn't really realize until the end that there are other people who have such a close relationship to the painting, like Pippa and her father, uh, her uncle, sorry. Yeah, he doesn't want to taint it just even by touching it which is so interesting because in the beginning when he's he's at the museum with her he expresses really no interest in the painting at all and you find yourself questioning why why is he risking his entire life his entire he could go to jail for this like he talks about people who have gone to jail for the other paintings that have been found and I think it's all just because it's a relationship for him like it's not it's not an object it's it's his mother uh, what did you think of Pippa in the film and, and the book, I guess? Um, in the book, I found she was quite annoying. I don't know if that's because she kind of delayed the story in that Theo became obsessed with her. Um, but then in the film, I think, I think the actress does a really good job of putting across this woman, well, this young girl, who, much like Theo, has been thrown into a traumatic situation mm. where she doesn't really belong in. I think their story in the, the when they talk in the cafe is really good at showing how everyone has different ways of dealing with grief. Theo surrounds himself with all the stuff of his mother, the painting, the streets he lives on, uh, Hobie and the artwork and the barbers and everything, while P Pippa leaves the city entirely, goes to an entirely different country because she doesn't want to have a memory of the grief she wants to start a new start fresh yeah i think 
that kind of comes across in the book as well in how Corby tells Theo not to mention her dad or not to mention anything about the museum because it will like it will bring up those memories and she very much wants to repress and move on whereas Theo is very much I will live in my trauma and I will live in my guilt. I do think it's interesting from a feminist perspective how a lot of the women in the book and the film they they kind of come across in that you start to begin to hit like you start by hating them like you said about um Mrs Barbara she's very like passive and impersonal and I think even Kitsy in the book is like that you you don't really you can't really develop a relationship with Kitsy as a character even Pippa like she talks to Theo and Theo like loves her but we only know her through Theo's perspective and we're never really given an insight into Pippa's perspective until later on and it takes a while for Donna Tart to kind of get into the female characters. Mm, yeah I think I think that kind of quite lends itself to the story in a way because in the in the book we spend all this time learning about his mother and developing her into this such a amazing character in Theo's life as soon as she's gone it kind of feels like he compares everyone else to her and that's why they're maybe not as developed as much initially because he's like yeah they're cool but they're not her yeah they're very much his his perspective of women and a male perspective of women which is quite jarring considering she's a female author Mm, definitely yeah if you were adapting the book again into a film how would you have done it differently from the 2019 version um i i think i probably would have done it in the way that the book is written in that we stay with young fear for the majority of it and then we go to old fear rather than going back and forth um purely because i think in a way you want to see him grow up and you want to see him develop rather than go back and forth between this massive event that's happened and his personal journey there, which becomes jarring for me. Um, I also think I would have put the museum to begin with and I would have focused more on their relationship, maybe through flashbacks, um, the relationship between Theo and his mother, rather than just kind of leaving her a blank face till the end. What about you? Personally, I don't think it should have been a film to begin with i think i think it's such a long and detailed story that i don't think any film could do it justice maybe if it was a show or something and it had the time to spend like i don't know like three or four episodes with him as a kid and then the back half of a season looking at him as an adult but i think there's just too much to unpack about this character and so much to explore that a film could never do it justice yeah it's it's one of those books where you have a lot of books in your life where you think actually I don't want that book to be turned into a film because it's either too personal to you or you don't see the characters cast in any way that will ever make it justice to the writer's description of them and I think in some ways the goldfinch lies in this category because of Tat's writing that there's no way that you can make the how that writing makes you feel and how beautifully written it is come across on the film like on a screen it's definitely an art form adapting someone's work when it's already so critically received and 
make sure it not you can't do a direct adaptation and expect it to be good because it won't translate well you have to think of what made the source material so good and then try and come up with a version of it which works to the medium you're putting it through yeah i like i like your idea of a tv show because i think in some ways theo reminds me a lot of beth in the queen's gambit in that just as she does when she got gets into drugs um she goes into this mental breakdown and the tv show does such a good job of showing it across all of the episodes even not even in the episodes where she's fully like spiraling in her home and i think that would have been interesting to see see like in feel yeah as you said queen's gambit it's such a well planned and drawn out process of her spiraling out of control like it's not like oh one episode she's perfectly fine the next she's intoxicated and out of her mind in a way it's it really does do it well whereas in the the goldfinch it's so sudden and everything keeps happening bit after bit and i think that's also part of why stuff like game of thrones works so well because rather than doing a book a film which is what they wanted to do George R. R. Martin was adamant that if you're going to adapt this make it a tv show so you get time to explore everything and then as soon as the show overtook the book it went a bit awry yeah I think that's an interesting parallel because I think the game of thrones is known for its multiple characters like I've only read one book and it goes back and forth between multiple perspectives within the book and I think the TV show does a good way of devoting enough time to each character that you you see them develop and you can pick your favourites which I think the Goldfinch has enough characters in the book that people would would be interested in knowing more about if it were done in the same way that Game of Thrones is done. I think that's one of the key advantages Mm. of a show over a movie because you've got so much more time you get to develop all these characters so much more. Yeah, I think that's why I'm looking forward to the new Percy Jackson TV show. Mm. Yeah, that is the main reason we're going to cover the Percy Jackson series quite yet. We're going to wait for an actual better adaptation. I also think it's interesting how they've adapted The Goldfinch, but her earlier novel, The Secret History, which is much more popular by anyone who has ever read Donna Tartt, hasn't been adapted. And I've read that, and again, I don't think I'd want it adapted, but it's interesting that they went straight for The Goldfinch. I think one of the main reasons people adapt it is because they'll read the book and think, okay, that we can make that into a film and that could do quite well. And I think someone saw this in The Goldfinch and thought, we can do this right. They were wrong, but they thought they could do it. Yeah, John Crowley, which it was his first film since he got nominated for an Oscar for Brooklyn. What a, yeah. <laughs> what, what a drop. <laughs> and they're so, they're, I think in some ways they're, they're similar in theme, although the Brooklyn it was obviously set in the 50s and not in present day they very much deal with interesting internal issues of identity but Brooklyn is amazing I love Brooklyn but the goldfinch doesn't does not know I haven't read the, <laughs> just a no. secret, is it the secret history I haven't 
read that myself. Yes. But would you say it's better than the Goldfinch? I would say it's better than the Goldfinch. I would say don't read it until you have another month because it is also is 800 also- pages oh, long. I'd like to hear my fun fact to close yes. us off. So uh, you'd be probably unsurprised to know that uh, Donna Tartt's writing process is quite long and intricate. Uh, she writes all the time Obviously. and it takes uh, ten, up to 10 years per novel. And she writes it first by hand. And she makes ne- notes in red and blue pencil, uh, stapling note cards to pages. And when notebooks start to fall apart, she prints out drafts and each new draft is printed on a corresponding shade of paper. Like, that is such an intense what? writing process. I think <laughs> similar... This to unpack here. <laughs> It's that isn't ten years up to ten years to write a book. I mean, to write, we're talking my copy of The Goldfinch is 800 pages long, that's in like A5, like size. To write that many pages, your hand she she must have some hand issues. And to be able to navigate through all those pages and think, like, oh yeah, I want to quickly go back, you're gonna have to just run through like a pool full of paper to get to it. And she prints each draft. A book goes through a lot of drafts before it's published. All the trees she is killing. Nothing compared to university students. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> wow, that I'm I'm a bit shook by that fact. Uh, I think it definitely links to. I think the writing process of George R. R. Martin is quite interesting as well. Like he only writes on like a really old computer, which is really weird. Hmm. Which is probably. Why That's why we're so still long. waiting for the next book. I have had a request. Um, my friend Amy wants us to do Gone Girl because she thinks Ooh. that the book is a lot better than the film and she wants someone to critically analyse it who knows what they're on about. Okay, do you know anybody? <laughs> Not us. Not us. You haven't, you haven't read the book. I think you would love the book. I love the book and I do agree that the book is better than the film but the film is also brilliant hmm. anyway have you got a fact to rival my fact well i had the fact about um harry styles was almost cast for the role of boris and my other casting fact is that liam neeson turned down the part of hobby i would have quite liked that you know <laughs> i would have quite liked liam neeson as hobie. <laughs> got the voice for it he has got the voice for it. He's got a very calming and hey, voice. He's, maybe he, he plays will... a brilliant dad in Love Actually. Mm, maybe he'll teach Ansel Eaton to be Batman. Oh, wait, what? Ansel's playing Batman? No, because... Uh, <laughs> I'm so confused. Batman Begins, uh, Liam Neeson taught... Oh my God, I've got his name. Oh, Christian Bale? Christian Bale, yeah. Ah, I'm just waiting for Robert Pattinson to bring Batman back. Me. You know, apparently there's issues on the set of the Batman because apparently Robert Patterson had sex on the Batmobile, which is one on brand for Robert Patterson and two on brand for Batman. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, that if was you like had, the rumor that he was masturbating. I mean, if you had the option to have sex on the Batmobile, I think you have to take it. Yeah. Uh yeah. Oh that's probably how he got COVID and they had to shut the set down. Oh, no. oh wow. <laughs> This, this, oh, no. this took a turn. I think, I think we've come to the end of the page and to the credits.
um question book or film the goldfinch edition i'm gonna have to go with the book i mean it's definitely closer than it will be for you between them but i think the book exceeds the film in me just a bit yeah it's definitely the book for me i just think there's something more that the book can bring to talk about when you talk when you think about it and although it's pretentious like narratively there's not many flaws with the book but there are a lot of flaws with the film yeah definitely i do think maybe the film is perhaps treated a bit too harshly at times but overall it does need a lot of improvement i won't be re-watching it anytime soon oh yeah it was a pain to re-watch it for this because i've only like before we i watched it for this i had only watched it the one time and I just, it took me ages to just put my laptop on and load it up because I was like, I know, I know what I'm going into. I don't want to submit myself to that again. Just sat on the play button, just silently weeping. Just putting it on like one point, like two times speed so I can get through it faster. I guess that does bring us to the end. If you have any questions or recommendations like uh, Amy gave us for Gone Girl, just let us know and we'll hopefully reply maybe not depends how we feel on the day thank you for listening and join us next time for fantastic mr fox